Hello, everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday Service. Um, I know that everyone would love to actually be here in our sanctuary as we celebrate Advent, um, but because of the things that are happening in Westfield and in Tioga County, we're unable to. Um, so for now, remember to keep each other in prayer. Um, keep our congregation in prayer, and also to keep our neighbors in prayer as COVID continues to run its course in our area. Um, if you would, then, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22, and we'll go ahead and start with verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. We now come to a new oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. This is somewhat enigmatic, which fits well with the enigmatic desert of the sea we saw in the last chapter. Regardless, the Valley of Vision could be the place where Isaiah receives many of his visions, but it's most likely referring to Jerusalem. This fits well since it is also likely where Isaiah did receive many of his visions since he lives in Jerusalem. But it may be more than that since Jerusalem is also more well known as Mount Zion. As such, a description of Jerusalem as not a mount, but a valley of vision may be purposeful. They think they are able to see, but the truth is they are in a valley where they cannot see what is coming over the mountain. In a way, it's a double entendre. Isaiah receives visions true, but the people are blind. This understanding is seen as the description of the people is described they are seen as going to the rooftops. Why do they do this? Because they're excited. They believe they have victory and have overcome. To go to the rooftops would show they are expecting some kind of news, likely of a battle won. That they are exultant shows their rationale. They are excited about the news. Yet we learn also something more about it. That the slain are not slain in battle shows that the people were not ready for a fight. Instead, they were overrun, overtaken. This is more reminiscent of a siege than a battle. The leaders who should have been in command and leading the people are seen to have fled them. Instead of being selfless in their leadership, seeking the betterment of the people, the leaders are only thinking of themselves. Instead of fighting for the people in the city... They have abandoned them and the city. Because of all of this, Isaiah is unable to join in their joy. He knows that whatever news which had brought excitement is not lasting. He knows the people are incredibly lost. And their being lost will lead to their own destruction. While the people laugh and rejoice, Isaiah cannot join but instead weeps over the coming destruction. We'll continue with verses 5 through 8. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult 
and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Isaiah now describes a day which is vastly different than the one the people are experiencing in the present. As we saw, they were rejoicing, thinking themselves safe, but Isaiah was able to see what would truly happen under the circumstances. There will still be a great noise, but the noise will not be one of exaltation and joy, but of tumult, trampling, confusion, words which describe an enemy ransacking the city. Indeed, Isaiah depicts such a devastation. The walls of Jerusalem will be torn down. The shout of exclamation over the destruction will be heard clear to the mountains. No longer will it be joy, but grief. The nations of Elam and Kir are part of the force which comes against Jerusalem. Elam was especially friendly toward Babylon in their fight against Assyria. Still, the point is the enemies will come against Jerusalem in full force. So great a force that the valleys are full of enemy chariots and the horsemen were already at the gates. In sieges, it would not be until after the gate had been destroyed that the horsemen would rush through. Thus, the valley of vision, Jerusalem, seems to have fallen. In the first half of verse 8, we learn why all of this is occurring. Because God has taken away the covering of of Judah. The covering is one which protects. That is God who is one who has protected his people. Yet they continually spurned him, and in response he allows their enemies to come against them. Now we're going to look at the second half of verse 8 through 11. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. Thus we come to the specific reasons which show their folly. When the enemy comes, they look toward their weapons. The people trusted in their weapons and stores of weapons in order to save them from their enemy. Not only do they trust in their military power, but they also trust in their ingenuity. In the time of Hezekiah, there was a tunnel built in order to bring water into the city. This was done precisely because in time past, their water supply was at a disadvantage being from pools outside of the city something which enemies could easily exploit. In the time of Hezekiah, however, this was alleviated. They also counted on their ingenuity in already designing, designating which buildings could be demolished in order to add to the walls, as well as fill places where the walls had been breached. They had a plan, believing their plan would repel the enemy. Indeed, they even had a reservoir of water just in case between the two walls. But what did they do? They failed miserably in the end because while they had set up their plans, they had ignored the one who created the water to begin with. Indeed, not only the one who had created the water, 
But the one who had created them as people, they continue to rely on themselves rather than turn in faith toward God, who is far stronger than all of their military strength and has a plan far greater than any plan that they could enact. Now I'll read the last three verses, 12 through 14. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely, this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Clearly, God was sending a message to his people. Indeed, the message was, Turn in repentance and faith. Such a turn would result in their weeping, mourning, and a recognition of their great sin before such a holy and righteous God. Recognition of sin is not a bad thing. Guilt is not a bad thing in and of itself because it is a recognition of something wrong with us, which is sin. Such a recognition should lead us not away from God, but into his grace, his mercy, and salvation, which is made evident in faith and repentance. Instead of this, however, the response by the people is joy and gladness. Instead of turning away from their sin and turning toward God, they party. They say, so what if the destruction comes? Let us enjoy today. They have no care at all about what is coming against them. And all the warnings of the coming destruction are completely and utterly rejected by the people who continue instead in their revelry. We notice it is not just simple satisfaction, but complete and utter indulgence. So the people have essentially spit in God's face. The response from God is a simple one. Such a rejection of himself for the things of this world only leads to destruction. That their iniquity will not be atoned for. Not because there is an inability, but as we learned previously from Isaiah 6, the people have hardened their hearts. They will not turn. And in not turning, they doom themselves to destruction. For such a people, there can be no atonement because they do not seek God and his grace and his mercy and his love. So the main point of these verses are to describe the situation with God's people. They continue to rely on the things of this world rather than the God of their salvation. Because of this, it leads to them spurning God. Instead of trusting in him and his prophets, they turn their own way. If they had turned toward God, they would find grace and love. But because they spurn him, all they find instead is their own destruction. When it comes to application points, I find it interesting to consider the valley of vision. The concept of vision has been a buzzword for many congregations for many decades now. This makes sense to me. If we do not have a vision, then what is our purpose? If there is no vision for what is happening around us, and there is no vision of what is to come, then what of our time together? It is a vision which allows us to take our next steps, without which we might end up falling into a pit. 
So the double entendre found in today's text is truly interesting to me. The valley of vision. Again, a valley doesn't have much in ways of vision. It is surrounded by hills or mountains, unable to see past them. The only way that anyone within the valley could have vision would be if the vision were given to them by someone who knew what was happening outside of the valley itself. Yet the people, they are not so wise. They look around them and conclude things, they're fine. They have no need to look beyond themselves because they believe they are safe and secured in their valley. That their technological marvels at the time will sustain them. Their walls should fortify them. Their weapons should preserve them. When they look only to themselves, it can be easy for them to conclude, there's really no reason to worry. This, however, is the problem itself. By not having vision, they do not see the coming doom. By ignoring the prophet's calls, indeed God's own calls to them, they show themselves to be lacking any vision at all. Their technological marvels will not sustain them. Their walls will not fortify them. Their weapons will not preserve them. Some might chastise them for their short-sightedness. But the truth is, we in our modern times should always be cautious to heed what occurred in the past. We remember what was written about those who came before us. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15.4 All too often, we can believe that what was written about the people in the past was only for them. But the truth is, it was written for us as well. To learn from them. Not to only learn from the good they accomplished but also to learn from their folly. If we do not take heed of those who came before us, their good and evil, then we will find ourselves without adequate vision as well. Our churches will slowly dissipate. Our society will continue its downward spiral to chaos. And all will join in saying and singing, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the case for us If we should have no vision, it will only lead to our own demise. It is true of society, but it is also true of our congregations. In both, we are able to see the folly of the ancients. When it comes to society, can any society in the world boast of the technological achievements of the United States? Can any boast of the mighty defenses we have constructed? Can any society boast of the military strength which we possess? Yet what is the vision? We seem overwhelmed by the philosophies of the world, a world untethered from reality. We are continually blinded by the ideologies of the day, by the continual change of meaning that none could possibly keep up. Can we say our congregations are any different? We've attempted to construct our defenses against the world. Yet what do we find? The world's beliefs are continually invading our congregations. The rise and acceptance of sexual immoral practices. 
The belief that Jesus is not the only way for salvation. The falling apart of the historic Christian faith where none remember what we believe or why we believe it. A view of the world which is just like the world's view of itself. If our vision is no different than the world's, is it possible that we have become like ancient Israel? Are we in a valley? For this, is there any hope? Is there hope for a future if there is no vision? Who can see today, let alone tomorrow? Have we become short-sighted by our own indulgence? Have we allowed ourselves to become complacent in the world of ideas? Have we allowed ourselves to be duped by lesser philosophies which seek to undermine the historic Christian teachings? And have we allowed ourselves to become silenced in the face of subjectivism, where truth has no permanent dwelling, but instead changes at a whim? Many have joined in the chorus to change what we believe for the sake of the common good or love. But what is good? What is love? Many are unable to answer even these questions, constantly being sidelined by the justifications we encounter by the world around us. Unable to provide a visionary response, we join with the popular answers. So many congregations, so many individual Christians have simply succumbed to the answers of the world. Why does this happen? What has caused this to happen with so many? The answer may lie in that we have allowed our eyes to be blinded. We have allowed our hands to be bound. And we have allowed our mouths to be silenced. In other words, we have allowed our visions to be so focused in the valley that we have allowed the world to pass through us without any warnings. Instead of being aware of the world around us and the repercussions, the true repercussions of Christ as Lord, we have found ourselves to be short-sighted. We thought that we could be saved if we were just able to keep the world at arm's length. And yet here we are now in a crisis of faith and knowledge because we lacked vision on what was happening around us. We have been stuck in the valley unable to see over the hills, thinking we have been safe. The issue with what we have done is not that we have been cautious, but presumptuous. It reminds me of King Saul, who was told to go against the Amalekites and to put destruction all the spoils. What did Saul do, though? Instead, He took back the spoils in order to sacrifice the spoils to God. How did God respond? We are told the following in 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. On one hand, 
We have those embracing worldly ideologies and continue to separate themselves from the historic Christian faith because they believe it is more good and loving to do so. On the other hand, we have those who refuse to engage the world for fear of becoming like the world, but in doing so, cease to mean anything to the world, hiding their light under a basket. And so we have people who are no longer salty and those who do not share their light. In both cases, we have individuals who are seeking to offer the spoils. In both cases, we have individuals who are acting on presumption. In both cases, we find individuals in the valley of vision, unable to see beyond the valley. Again, the question comes to mind, is there hope? Are we ever to remain in our own valley of vision? I don't believe so. I do not believe that we must be stuck in the valley. No. We can have the wider range of vision which sees beyond the valley and over the hills and the mountains. It is a vision which sets our path straight and gives us a permanent foundation for our assurance. What is this vision? It is the vision of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection which redeems us from our sin and our guilt. It is the vision of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. It is the vision of our Lord Jesus Christ's command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, souls, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourselves. It is the vision of Jesus Christ giving all of himself to us. And us now being able to give all of ourselves to our God. The vision of Christ is able to overcome all of the world around us. But it requires us to believe. It requires us to have faith in what has been proclaimed. It requires us to be obedient to the God who has made himself known to us. Who has promised us that if we should place our faith in him then we shall overcome. Not because we are so strong, but because he is so strong. And we know we will overcome because he has already overcome through Jesus Christ. Any vision we have which separates us from our God is no vision at all. Instead, it is only another pathway to the pit, filled with the bones of those who believe their own way was good enough And who joyously proclaimed, eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Let us not falter. Let us not believe we have vision when we are truly blind. Instead, let us remember that our God is sufficient for our salvation. And he has given us himself now and forever. I can think of no great vision, of no greater vision, than the one that God bestows to us. Let us not settle for anything less than the vision for us that he has and the vision that he has for this world and his vision for the world which is to come in glory. Now all of this reminds me of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the fact that Christ is real and that the whole gospel of Christ is so beautiful Because of its redemption. But the gospel begins with our origins. 
We are told in the Bible that you and I, human beings, are created in God's image. And that God is the first cause of all that we see. It's from him that we are able to see and have this reality that we experience every day. And the fact that he created us in his image means that each human being has dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. And that no one can take that away from them. Because each person, again, is created in the image of God. No matter how young or how old. No matter how frail or how strong. The problem comes, though, when sin enters the world. And we see the effects of sin with the people today. They are rejoicing over destruction. They are rejoicing and ignoring the word of God. They are willingly turning in disbelief. It's not a matter of doubt, but of purposefully not believing in what God is telling them. And instead of seeing that their sin is so great, and instead of repenting of their sin, they instead jump into it. Their immorality, their brokenness, they continue to choose these things. And the truth is, is that we could chastise them. We could say, how could you? Don't you know who God is? But the truth is, we have sinned as well. We are just like them. We have all done it. We are all filthy in our sin. We are all guilty in our sin. There is not a one who hasn't done the same thing that they did. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Is there any hope for people such as us? Is there any hope for people who have so broken God's moral code? Who have so much blood on their hands? Who have done such destructive things in the world? And cause so much pain? Well, thanks be to God there is. Thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus Christ... And through his life, death, and resurrection, in time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption. Should we place our faith in him? Indeed, that's all God is asking from these people. Faith. Belief. Trust. We have all of these things in Jesus Christ. And we can turn toward our God now. If we should believe. And that belief will cause in us a desire for repentance, a turning away from our sin and turning toward God. Righteousness, holiness, to glorify Him. For those who don't believe, though, there is condemnation. There is judgment. And ultimately, there is eternal death. But for those who believe... There is glory. For those who turn in repentance and faith, they will experience God Himself first in this life, and will see glimpses of it in this life, but then further down the road into eternal glory with our God. I encourage all of you don't be like the people. Don't be blind 
Instead, turn to God and He will let you see. He will give you grace. He will give you mercy. And He will bestow eternal love upon you should you place your faith in Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You so much for what You have accomplished through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your prophets who proclaim the truth. We ask, Lord, that each one of us would continue to desire to honor you, that we would seek to glorify you in this life. And Lord, we thank you for those who came before us so that we could learn. And Lord, we mourn because of their folly. But we also know, Lord, that we can be transformed. And that though we are a people of folly as well, you can change us for good. So Lord, we give you praise, we give you thanks. And it's in your holy name that we ask for your blessings. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I thank you for joining us this wonderful Sunday. I pray that you all again remain safe and healthy, and I pray that you would continue to glorify your God. Continue to be salt and light. Amen. God bless everyone.